So, you know, there's, there's billions of people living on Earth today, but by some calculations in the long-termist community, there could be 100 trillion people living in the future if, if our species lasts for millions of years. You know, so, and that vastly outweighs the needs of the present. And you know, if you put them on uh, on a scale, like nine billion people is nothing compared to 100 trillion. And there could be even more. There could be, you know, more than that, according to kind of some slightly wackier estimates that involve kind of digital people. So that, that that's where it starts to get controversial. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. The here and now occupies us a lot, and for good reason. We've got to get our next meal, pay our rent. If we're thinking about the future, we might be worried about how we're going to save for retirement, replace the car, put the kids through college. For many people, climate change is a problem for future generations. Climate is then. What's happening now? That's just weather. But our actions or inactions can have huge impacts on the future. Climate change will mean that people living a mere 100 years from now will live very differently than we do. The plastics that we use so freely right now will be present for millennia. How did we get this way? Living entirely in the present. And how could thinking long term change how we behave now? Should it? To find out, I'm here with Richard Fisher. He's a senior journalist with the BBC in London and honorary research associate at University College London and author of the new book, The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time. He's also a friend of mine and member of my MIT night science journalism cohort. So I'm so thrilled to have him here. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to be here, Bethany. Now, you are a geologist by training, and you start by talking about how humans became aware of just how much time there was, because <laughs> there's a lot of time. And, and you went as part of this to see Hutton's Unconformity, which I admit I have never actually heard of before. Um, and it's a key piece of this puzzle. Can you talk about what that is and how it contributed to our understanding? Sure. Well, I, I can trace Hutton's Unconformity back to when I was at school, actually. And I, I studied geology uh, um, at school, which is quite unusual. Uh, this is before university um, for, for my A-levels. And uh, th there aren't many kind of places that you can go and study geology, uh, do geology at school. But I, I did. And we, we went to kind of like see um, a, a location on the island of Arran, uh, Arran which is in Scotland, which uh, has a kind of like unique arrangement of rocks. Um, it's 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 unusual because you can actually see deep time there, there written in the rocks. So James Hutton, who was a geologist uh, a few hundred years ago, uh, one of the first geologists, he's called the father of geology, uh, was was kind of wandering through Scotland and he and he noticed that the way that these rocks had been arranged as as, as kind of they were, they were like vertical layers stacked like cards overlaid by flat uh, sandstone beds. There was no way that those rocks could have formed without a huge gap in the middle. So that the line, the un, what's called the unconformity that separates these two formations of rocks, like represents an absence, a lacuna in time. And th this was one of the first times that geologists and, and well, scientists as a whole realized that uh, you could see in, in the rocks that it wasn't possible for the biblical account of time to be true. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10, 20 years before Hutton came along, a, uh, a priest uh, called James Usher had kind of calculated the age of the earth using kind of the stories of the Old Testament, you know, literally going back through the generations to think, okay, well, how, how far back can we go? And, and what, 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 what kind of time are we looking at? And it was, you know, it was roughly 6,000 years. 
But of course, this the, the idea that there was tens of millions of years written into the rocks, this blew this biblical account out of the water. And so this, this was, for me, it was an early account of, you know, way of uh, experiencing deep time. Uh, and it, it, you know, as a young, a, a young man, it was the first time I'd kind of like thought in that, in that way. But ever since then, I've been fascinated by the idea that you can walk to a beach and, and see a, an ammonite or a trilobite. And it lived hundreds of millions of years ago. I, I think that that kind of fascination with deep time has run throughout my career and, and through my interests. So, you know, I had a rock collection as a kid. Uh, and then it's, it's what ultimately led to the long view. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of uh, something that you can see a lot in North America, which is the sign of the KT extinction. Um, there's actually a big like line that is dark in um, a lot of the rocks out west. And you can actually see like the moment the dinosaurs died <laughs> yeah. is there. And it, it's just mind boggling to kind of look at it. And it makes you really think about about time. Yeah, definitely. I, I went I went back to a different kind of place that Hutton's Conformity can be found in Scotland recently to make some films for the BBC. Um, it's at a place called Sicker Point. And what, what struck me there, however, was not just that you could look back in time at the Unconformity, but you could also look up the coast to see Torness nuclear power station and a cement works. So it, it, it's the, 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 the author that I was with, uh, a chap called David Farrier, who's based at the University of Edinburgh, he describes this coastline as an Anthropocene coast, just because it's, it has it has two aspects. It has the the kind of the, the reach back into deep time, but you've also got kind of nuclear waste, which is going to be you know st- around for millennia. Uh, you've got cement works, which is is kind of like you know uh, redolent of the the climate change uh, crisis. So I, I think that this this kind of like sense that we can look back in time a long way is is it's always fascinated me but more recently i've also kind of been fascinated about the things that we leave behind and the generations that might be to follow and i was wondering how did kind of these new understandings of geology as opposed to like the biblical accounting one of which of it, one of my favorite things of that is like the whole earth is like around 6000 years old and like 744 of those years were methuselah <laughs> but anyway um i was wondering how it, Hutton's unconformity and kind of our new understanding of geology, which is the far past, has allowed us to think about the far future. How does that kind of emerge out of our new understanding of the past? Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of a complex question. I think what, one of the things I was trying to kind of work out was uh, um, how, how did people in the past think about time? This was kind of like a, an early central question for me. Um, you know, so... If you, if you could go back a thousand years, were people imagining the 21st century? The, the answer was no, not really. But then, it, but it also wasn't the case that there wasn't a, a earlier iterations of, of long views either. So the people who built Stonehenge, for example, had a, had a long view. They, they planned ahead. They brought the stones across the country to, to to build. You know, and then also you fast forward to the medieval age. People built cathedrals that would you know be passed on to like the next person to finish. So it wasn't the case that the long view didn't exist, but um, in terms of like linear scientific time, that that was something that had to kind of be discovered. The, the idea that uh, things were very, very different in the past, humans were not around, uh, you know, different creatures walked the earth, that that was new. And then, and, and then also kind of like that extension to the future too, that it followed, you know, if, if, you, if we look ahead to kind of like, for example, uh, the discovery of radioactivity, that that's something that a researcher I know called Thomas Moynihan has, has written about. You know the the way that the radioactive uh, elements in the sun will carry on burning for a very long time was it was another way that that scientists realised that 
the the future could be much longer and larger than we than we think. So you know, science is not necessarily provided us with a long view, but it has changed our our view of time in many different ways. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, we know intellectually, like we learn in class, the earth is billions of years old, and it will probably go on for billions of years more until our star explodes. And then, you know, that's going to happen eventually. And, you know, the universe is, is massively old, and it has a massive future in front of it. But you also note that the way we live our lives in the day to day is extremely short term. And one of the things I really appreciated about your book is that you point out a lot of the cultural factors that make it that way. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk about some of those. What are some of the cultural influences that kind of increase our attention to the here and now? Sure, yeah. Well, I I should say I first started to think about this question uh, when my daughter, Grace, who you know, was born. So Shout out um, to Grace. Yeah, yeah, so it starts there, really. Shortly after Grace was born, and um, this was, you know, 2013, 14, I started to kind of think about her life and what would lay ahead. And, you know, I, I realized to my great surprise that she could stand to kind of actually see the next century. She'll be 86 years old. Um, but then that kind of daydream that uh, kind of soured a little bit because I started to think about the the way that we don't really think that far ahead. Or if, or if we do, then, you know, we're, we're both journalists. So the kind of stories that the the date 2100 tends to feature in tend to involve words like sea level rise or artificial intelligence takeover or you know there are it's rarely kind of rosy the the, the year 2100 so that i started mars to think, colony there's always mars colony yeah that's true that's true yeah <laughs> there are i mean i guess there are, are utopias which we can talk about later but I, I think the the that sense that um short-termism is is a problem uh you know it, it kind of underpins so many different problems that we face you know climate change being the most obvious one you know it has effects that will kind of like ripple ahead into the future and if we only focus on the present then we we can't really solve those that that was something that really occupied me for a while and and so I, you know i wrote about that at the bbc uh wrote a kind of long essay that took me about six months to write uh that was that was a, a long project and, th- and then that was the you know i came to mit where, where we were and started to think about like kind of what the causes were what what the kind of like the cultural pressures and psychological habits that might exist that that are kind of like nudging us away from a long view. You know, I, I think we have this sense of time, as we talked about. You know, we know we know that there's been billions of years in the past, and there'll be millions of years in the future. You know, wh- whether humanity will be there or not is an open question. But you know, we 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 can project our minds ahead if we want to. But there are many other factors in modern life which are embedded within capitalism, within politics, within the way we consume media that. That I, I call them temporal stresses in the book. These th- these are the things that kind of con- you know converge to uh, you know nudge us to a short term view. And it, it, there's no silver bullet. We can't simply solve one of them and then everything will be will be clear. But you know it, it's the way that they combine and that that combined with our kind of like psychological habits too. I, I think there's certain ways that our brains work which are imperfect. And then when uh, a kind of a, a, a kind of false target comes along and then kind of distracts us, then that that can also kind of like affect how we think. But yeah, I, I can talk in more detail about those, but like that's that's the that's how I think about it. That there are cultural pressures and then also psychological habits, both of which can like lead to a short-term view. And actually, I did want to bring up one example of that because I found this especially compelling, even though it's extremely prosaic. <laughs> the quarterly reporting. 
<laughs> that has gained popularity on the New York Stock Exchange. I loved this particular section. And I was wondering if you could talk about how quarterly reporting came about and how it's changed the way we think. Well, yeah, so that's a good example of where the 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 way that modern society works and, and capitalism operates doesn't necessarily need to be the way that it currently is. But it, but it is. So I, I think I think that's that's worth saying first of all. And um, just to define it, so qu- quarterly reporting is where a company reports to the market every quarter. You know, provides projections, talks about kind of like what it expects the earnings will look like, and, and so on. How, what kind of investments will be going on? The, the, the trouble is that this this cadence of the quarter tends to kind of like nudge leaders within companies through a combination of both kind of like self inflicted harms and and also kind of like the market will will punish you if you do it. Like the, the, to make short-term decisions. So this it was it's it's a cultural invention though. Like it, it hasn't always been a part of capitalism, and it needn't always be one. So about a hundred years ago, the New York Stock Exchange just just made the suggestion. They said so companies should start to kind of report every quarter. It seemed like a good thing. They just share more information, transparency. That makes sense uh, without much thought to kind of like the psychological implications. It wasn't fully adopted for, for decades more. But you know now it's kind of so embedded within present-day capitalism that it's it's barely noticed, and it causes kind of so much, uh, so so many different issues because because leaders will do things like you know and there's research that shows this like they'll cut back on R and D, they'll invest less in people, they'll you know do things that are bad for sustainability, like just to please the market. And then it's not necessarily that the market is bad and the leaders are, are doing the right thing. It's it's a systemic issue. So it's not it's not that everybody. Like thinks it's a good idea all around. It's just it's just the way things work, and so I, I think that that struck me as an example of something that's become so embedded and and so kind of uh, ubiquitous that we don't even notice it's there anymore. But it needn't be. Yeah, another one of the things you brought up that I thought was especially prescient, um, especially in uh, the United States where I live, um, is uh, the pressingness of elections, yeah. <laughs> um, and the fact that like people here are already talking about like elections on the news and and there's there's more than a year <laughs> they start talking about the next election as soon as the previous one is over yeah it's true i i think i mean this, this is I, I mean that's another kind of um thing that you know like the quarter we we have elections every four years or we i mean you know uh in new england there's this governors who are every two years so it's even shorter which is kind of surprising so i i think the the way that the I mean, it's, it's a conundrum, this, right? Because um, you could you could say, okay, well, the elections are the problem, so let's get rid of elections. And that's clearly not the answer, right? So no. you know, getting rid of democracy is not the answer to having a, a longer a view. Um, but but it, do, it does create pressures on politicians that we need to be aware of. I, I think there's a kind of a key quote that I keep going back to. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker, who is the former president of the European Commission, you know, in the wake of the financial crisis, uh, you know, he he said a quote that was that was I might paraphrase here, but it was a pretty much we all know what to do, but we don't know how to get re-elected once we've done it, and that that is the problem for politicians. As in, they'll they'll be punished for making long-term decisions, and so I, I think that 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 is something that again needn't be the case, but it, it only only if we bring it out into the open. There are interesting political experiments to try and kind of like bring a longer-term view into politics. But you know, like you know, Wales, for example, um, is has got a Future Generations Act where uh, a Future Generations Commissioner is appointed, and, and who has to kind of encourage politicians to kind of think about future generations in, in their 
policy decisions. You know, so, so it's not the case that there aren't things being tried to change politics. So it's just it's it's a it's a deep problem. I think I think if we continue to only focus on what politicians do over the next you know horizon of month to a year, then it's not surprising that they're going to make decisions that will only kind of benefit the near term rather than the long term. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this because, you know, as you mentioned, like, the solution here is not authoritarian systems. Authoritarian systems are not actually any more long thinking than democratic ones. Um, but I was wondering if you could expand a little more on these kind of future generations positions. Um, how do these work? Are they working? And by what measures? What sort of kind of things do they promote and how do they do it? I think I think the best way to think about them is as is as experiments. I think and and or ways that that the things could work differently uh, as by example. So to, to take the example of Wales. So what Wales um, is, uh, you know, there's not, there's not a huge amount of people living there. It's it's nothing compared with U.S. Congress, but you know, they they made a decision that future generations mattered. It was a relatively kind of like non-partisan issue like people agreed that you know our children matter um and the, what that led to there was actual legislation the future generations act and that that was that was new and that that was something that hadn't really been done that much before i think countries like hungary had experimented with it too and it it's not perfect you know the the the, the former future generations commissioner sophie howe has been involved in various different kind of attempts to Get politicians in Wales to think about uh, climate change, to you know n- not pass r- road bypass legislation, but think about kind of public transport, that those kinds of issues. So it's not it's not incredibly sexy politics. It's it's kind of like it's you know it's it's road bypasses and and it's kind of like very you know it's it's that kind of thing. But but it but it, it matters within the jurisdiction that that she focuses on uh, has focused on, um, and I think it points as a way that. Other other countries could try the same thing. So in England, the House of Lords has been having kind of similar discussions about like how to integrate kind of some sort of legislation that encourages policymakers to think about the the consequences of of the decisions they make on on the next generation. Because of course, the next generation can't vote. You know, I mean, up to kind of a certain age, our children can't vote. But but even you know before the ones that will follow. Greta Thunberg and, and, and others, they, they, you know, they don't even exist yet, yet they will be affected by the, the, the politicians' decisions today. And so I think, I think there is a growing recognition of that. I think whether it would work in the US, I have no idea. I mean, you, the political system in the US has, has got many other problems to tackle. So I, I, you know, I, I, I think how to convert it into, the, into uh, US politics is, is a big challenge. But I think I think the way that the, the many countries are trying out and experimenting, I think, is a good thing. It just means that kind of like the people who are unrepresented within elections currently are, are represented. And so, yeah, I think that's an interesting change. Yeah. So as you mentioned, like a lot of the kind of policies that are forward thinking, tackling climate change, um, tackling, you know, public transportation, um, you know, housing, long term housing, stuff like that. It's very unsexy. Like let's be real, not sexy. (laughs) Um, And this kind of leads me to um, the other kind of people that many very intelligent people idolize, right? We often idolize recent innovations in places like Silicon Valley. There's this culture of what have you done for me lately, right? Um, 
in terms of who we idolize, in terms of the tools we use. And I was wondering, why do you think we tend to think this way, right? Um, you know, we we can talk more about the psychology as we get into it. Um, but, you know, humans are very collaborative. We're very social and we are very good at things like, you know, trading off um, favors to each other and, you know, being generous back and forth with each other. Um, but we do that very much in the here and now. Why do you think we tend to idolize that very short term, you know, I haven't seen you in a week. Who are you to me? Kind of mindset. Mm. Um, I suppose, I suppose one way to approach that question is to talk about Twitter. If we can talk about Twitter, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> because the person, the person who's running it, you know, is, is, you know, maybe representative of what you're talking about, um, Elon Musk. Um, and, and, and by its very nature, the, the design of the site, the design of the, the tools that Silicon Valley creates forces us into the present. You know, it's, it's, it's real time. And, and so I, I, I suppose that there are many different tools and technologies that Silicon Valley, uh, and modern culture has created that, that don't foster long-term thinking or, or kind of that they don't, you know, if you, with your iPhone, you're meant to update it quickly. You know, it's, it's not about kind of like having something that lasts a very long time sustainably. It's it, so I, I suppose in, in, if that's, is that what you mean? Or, I mean, or do you, are you talking about kind of culture more generally? I mean, that's a bigger question, I suppose. I guess where I'm kind of going with this, um, and you brought up Twitter, and I think that's a very good example, is the role of the media, many of whom are on Twitter, or were anyway. <laughs> um, and, and I was wondering, like, what is the role of the media in promoting short-term thinking? Because I really do think there's there's a lot of of blame to be had there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's true. I think this is something that that you know, I think about a lot, and we, we've talked about it in the past. Um, I, I think... You know, we're both journalists. I, I mean, I suppose one way to approach it is, is a, a few years ago, I did a talk uh, for some journalists in, in London where I, I kind of um, look back at the BBC News web homepage. You know, I work for BBC News, uh, and I was just curious about ten years prior what what was on, actually on that page, and it was just looking at the list of headlines. It was striking how much of it was transient. I mean, th there were a few kind of like hints. Uh, uh, the the financial crisis that you know the, the, it was the aftermath at the time, but everything else was just so like you know it didn't matter, and and that that, that was something that I, th I suppose if, you, if we if, as journalists it's hard to to know what really matters over the long term. However, like the way media has been kind of like shaped by by kind of like present day social media a lot over the past few years, you know, it's, it's fueled entire business models and, and it's changed the decisions that journalists make about what people want to read and the things that like are, you know, of, of in the conversation, things that people are talking about now, that, that that tends to kind of get more clicks than something that will happen in the abstract in 10 years time. You know, it has less, you know, things that happen in the abstract in 10 years time have no visuals. There's no kind of controversy or, or kind of like you know fire or outrage. So yeah, I, th I think there's that, that that sense that outrage is something that the media has become aware that it, it helps kind of keep them afloat. You know, as in journalists need eye eyeballs, like the, the business people behind them need to kind of like have audiences, and, and so in order to sell to advertisers, and that that's something that's like de like deeply flawed within our kind of industry at the moment. And you know, I hope it will change, but that the the media is certainly culpable. In keeping it locked in the present, and and I, I've tried to, over the past few years to 
as much as I can think more deeply about the kinds of stories that I do. You know, I, I ran a season at the BBC called Deep Civilization, which was kind of like about kind of long-term uh, views on various different topics, everything from religion to intelligence to the collapse of civilization. You know, so I, I, I do try and think about it as I make these decisions, but it's, it's difficult. There are a lot of pressures and incentives for journalists not to do that. You know, it, it's easy to blame journalists, but then the audience is a part of that as well, you know, and, and as I say, technology companies too. So again, it's a systemic issue, which doesn't need to be this way, but it is. And so I think the only way to start to solve it is to identify it and talk about it. Yeah, it made me think of uh, something I get a lot of times when I uh, pitch pieces um, to outlets. Uh, the One of the biggest criticisms you'll hear a lot of times is, why is this news yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's partially because news has the word new in it. Yeah. Right. True. What do you have to bring this now? Yeah. Right. Do you have something that just happened? Um, and I, I think th- that can be really limiting in terms of what we cover. Yeah. I think I think a fundamental question is 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 news a accurate representation of reality? And this is something I think about a lot, right? I, I think the it's true that these things happen and they're factual. So that that's definitely true. I'm not I'm not going down a conspiracy rabbit hole. But like there are also many other things that are happening more slowly that just don't get picked up by the architecture of news. You know, they they there's they're not kind of like uh, bright and loud and urgent enough. You know, like very slow changes in uh, over time, for example. So, you know, like for 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 instance, there, there are many things that are getting kind of slowly worse. You know, think, like look at climate change, for instance. It's not going. I was going to say the news line is climate change still happening. Stuff yeah. worse. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But and, but the thing that you know, I think I suppose we're seeing that spill out into the kind of actual impacts and disasters now, and so that gives them journalists something to to focus on. But the, I mean, the, the, there are also many other stories that don't get covered as much. You know, changes in inequality, for example. Um, you know, there there are things that are getting better. You know, ch- child mortality over time, over the long view. Is getting better globally, and and you know extreme poverty has overall got you know got better, and, and I think the, these things don't get picked up because they don't have a kind of um, a, an angry politician or a kind of like an audience clamoring to, to read about them, but they are true and are and are happening. So I, I have I've thought a lot about like how to you know change my own media diet, or at least you know at least I have to I have to kind of like stay in the real time world of Twitter and what's happening right now. It's part of my job, but. You know, I, I think uh, everybody would stand to benefit if if we kind of looked beyond the news and, and supplemented that diet with with other things. You know, longer term perspectives, like books, for example. Like you know, so <laughs> I, I think that, that that those kinds of things are, are worth considering. You know, what what does your media diet look like? Is it is it long view? Is it long term? Is it is it is it giving you an accurate representation of what's happening in the world? I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on that in terms of like a long-term news emphasis. What exactly does that look like? How does that coverage differ? Like, are the ideas, the fundamental messages of the stories, like, how are they different? It's a, that's, I mean, it's a difficult question. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I don't have all the answers to that. I think, I think because, because if, you, if you're a TV producer, and you, you need to kind of produce a, a package. You need visuals, right? So, it's if, if the story is about something that happens ten years from now, what what visuals do you use to put on on the screen to, to kind of engage people? So, so the the actual kind of the architecture and 
the treatment of, of news lends itself to, to that. I, I suppose an, an, one way to think about it would be to think that journalism is, is wider than news. As it, so not, not all journalism is news. There are many other types of journalism. There's kind of like long form, there's, there's in-depth reads. That, you know, it's not, it's not the case that we have to just report what's happening over the past 24 hours in the rearview mirror of, of the, you know, the, the metaphorical car that we're driving. I think, I think the, there are, there are other approaches to journalism that exist, you know, I mean, solutions-focused journalism is, I think, is an interesting way of, of you know, it, it's it's a way of, of, of approaching climate change in, in a kind of like a different approach. You know, it has, again, it's not the only answer. It's part of a kind of varied media diet. But I, I think many different outlets are experimenting with that now, like not just reporting the kind of the impacts and the downside of, of, of climate change alone, which is important, but also like looking at the solutions that might kind of steer us towards better futures too. And so one of the things that, you know, we're talking about kind of this tendency that we have toward short-term recency. And one of the things that you actually didn't really cover in the book, but which left me very curious as a former neuroscientist, is that you talk a lot about the psychology of time, how time feels to people. Um, But I was wondering, did you learn anything about how the brain perceives time? Like, where do we process ideas of time in our brains? And how does that kind of affect how we perceive it? In, in short, no, no, I didn't look at the neuroscience specifically. I, I, I guess I, I looked at the brain in, in the sense that that we are our brains, right? <laughs> like, you know, we, we, our, our, we are brains just navigating the world. So I, I looked at kind of like psychology and, and people's behavior. Because that, that, to go back to those, those original questions, I was just interested in, in wh- why we're, we're short-termists in the first place. Um, but, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't focused on this region of the brain manifests itself as, as kind of like time focused, whereas this one is not. And that, that said, I did, um, uh, kind of write about a particular kind of brain injury patient, which helped psychologists and neuroscientists to kind of like understand, uh, how, how kind of like the time is conceived in, in the brain in terms of constructing past, present and future. So that this, this chap is, he's a fascinating case study. His name's, he was named Kent Cochran, who he was in a motorcycle accident. And he, um, in, in his kind of thirties, uh, had this very severe amnesia. And so at, fir- at first the doctors thought, okay, this is a standard kind of amnesia case, but what, what kind of made him of interest was that sp- the specific parts of his brain, um, and please don't ask me which parts, cause I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, that th- were damaged, uh, that, and that stopped him to be able to, he couldn't imagine the future. And, and this, you know, he, this this was kind of like pretty crucial for understanding how we think about the future in the mind. Like we use our memories and stitch them together into a tapestry to think about possible kind of scenarios. And this, the fact that Cochrane couldn't didn't have episodic memory specifically. He couldn't remember. He, he could remember facts. He could tell you how to change a tire, for example, or what a thermostat was. But he couldn't remember the, the train crash in his neighbourhood. From when he was younger, you know, like actual kind of like scenes, and so we, we need those scenes in order to kind of think about possible future scenarios. Like ch- children, of course, can't do this, right? So very early on, they they are learning and and are thinking about like time and and how it's conceived. But a baby, to an extent, is trapped in the present, and it's only over time that we start to kind of like develop the the skill of mental time travel, and we we need the the ability in order to kind of take the long view and so this was fundamental to me like th- thinking about like how mental time travel came to be something that our species has but one that can be kind of like we can lose it if we're not careful i actually think that's really beautiful how much we need the past to imagine the future 
Like that's that's like deep, dude. It's deep. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) so um, one of the things that I found really fascinating um, about your book is that you actually talked about different cultures and how they perceive time differently. Um, Like, for example, in Western perceptions of time, we have time as a physical perception of distance. Like we see the future is far away physically as well as mentally. Um, And you actually talked about several cultures who perceive time, for example, going uphill or downstream (laughs) or various other things. And I was wondering, how do you think those different directions change those people's perceptions of time and how they integrate the future into their lives? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I I think as, you know, as a project, I would love to go out and interview some of these these tribes uh, in Papua New Guinea. I, I mean, that would be a, a kind of fascinating way of, of asking them. You know, what what does the long view mean to you? Um, unfortunately, I, I, I know I wrote the book during the pandemic. I wasn't able to do that. But um, I, I was, you know, scientists did go and speak to them. Anthropologists have spoken to them and, and had a sense, but developed a sense of like how the because when when I think about time, I don't, I don't know about you, but I I've, I've certain manifestations in my head. I, I think about myself traversing a landscape, you know, walking into the future. Or, or I think of it, if, you know, with a scientific mindset of it's the x-axis going from left to right. You know, so, so that timelines run from left to right. You know, it's, it's just, we're just so used to the way that 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 is the way that time is constructed that we take it for granted. What's interesting about some of the other cultures, though, is that they they have different shapes and approaches. And so the, the Yupno tribe in Papua New Guinea live on in kind of like very steep valley slopes, and uh, and on and they, when asked, conceive of time as flowing uphill. Uh, which is is just I can't imagine myself because I'm not in their heads. But the researchers who spoke to them, I think uh, Rafael Nunes, I think his uh, his name is, and their colleagues, they they kind of asked about tomorrow and yesterday, and they looked at the way that the hand gestures would change. People would gesture upslope and talking about tomorrow. Um, but interestingly, just as a you know follow up paper, they also kind of looked the, the orientation changed again once once people were inside. So if they went into their buildings, then. I think tomorrow was towards the door or, you know, or away from the door. It, it, basically, it was in their orientation that cha- changed from upslope, downslope. Um, you know, and, and d- d- you know, different languages kind of have different conceptions. So I, I think, uh, you know, it, we, we, we write from left, left to right. But then I, I, and I think if you, you look at other languages which don't do that, then sometimes the orientation is the opposite way. You know, sometimes time, uh, we'll, we'll, people walk backwards into it. So they face the past. But like the future is to their back, which when you think about it, it makes sense because we don't know the future, but we do know the past. It's what we can see. Um, so that, that, that's that's fascinating. And there's, there's one particular kind of unusual orientation where uh, people walk backwards into it, facing into the past, but then the deep future and the deep past are way above their head. Uh, so it's kind of circular and then they then they meet. So uh, that that's again, that's a different conception. And so. It, the reason I was interested in this is, is because when I think about the long view, I think of a timeline just extending. But of course, it can be a circle expanding. It can be a, a spiral kind of you know, it's playing out. I think if, if we can kind of accept that we have a certain view of time that's developed in a certain way, then that, then we can kind of assume that there are going to be other ways of thinking about time too. And so that that culture cultural view is is fascinating to me. Yeah. And it actually made me think of um, different groups that like, are there, are there groups that really perceive time as circular? Um, 
because, you know, if you believe, for example, in reincarnation, which some religions do, like you could perceive time in a very circular way. And I'm also thinking because there's a big fantasy series called The Wheel of Time and the whole concept um, in The Wheel of Time is that time is circular. <laughs> yes, I, I think. Um, so so I, th I think the there is there is there are some historians that argue that in the past, in say the medieval age, time was seen as more circular, you know, the rising and falling of kingdoms, you know, crops seasonals you know all, all these are kind of like cyclical if, if, if it's not quite circular but it's, it's kind of like time repeats there isn't kind of like a past present and future where our lives are going to be different to our ancestors and they in turn will be different to their our grandchildren uh you know things just stayed the same and repeated um i suppose the the, the aboriginal australian kind of point of view um is, is kind of sometimes has been described by researchers as, as everyone, which is, is more like being in a lake where, you know, all of time is surrounding you. I, I can't quite cons you know, picture that myself, but that's, that's kind of more, it's not rotating, but it's certainly time surrounds you rather than kind of like time. I was going to say, that's separating. giving like strong space time. Yeah. I'm yeah, getting yeah. strong space time vibes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that, that, that there are, there are different shapes of time, certainly. And of course, this links, you know, with beliefs and worldviews, which is really fascinating when you think about it, how incredibly intertwined our idea of time, which is like a thing that can be scientifically measured, is so deeply intertwined with spirituality and with religion. Um, and so you have a few sections in your book on religion, um, things like, for example, Shinto temples that are rebuilt every 20 years in exactly the same pattern right next to the old one. Um, and you even note that like one of the biggest long-term art projects is an incredibly long musical piece um, that is played on a special organ in a church. Um, but I was really struck by this because churches, mosques, temples, many of these places are some of the oldest structures in a city or even a country. Um, for example, I mean, one could say Stonehenge, for example, is one of the oldest structures still standing in the world. The pyramids um, were also built for religious purposes and are some of the oldest standing structures in the world. And it also made me think about the role of religion in time. So, for example, there are a lot of prayers and religious texts that offer things like our children and our children's children. Or we will do this to the seventh generation. Uh, let your impacts upon the world be impactful to the seventh generation. And I was wondering, did you end up looking at religion and how religion changes our perception of time and also where we place the worth of time? Like, how does that change whether we pursue long-term thinking? Yeah, so you, you mentioned a few examples. So I looked at the, the, the Shinto religion and the, the Zoro Zoroastrian uh, kind of a, a way of thinking as, as kind of case studies. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, to tell the truth, you could write a whole book about like the religious long view. I mean, I, I mean, it's okay if it's okay to say, I mean, you, you wrote it, like you read an early manuscript version of my book and you said, have more religion in it. And so I took it. <laughs> I, so I added, I added more religion, more. Richard. It yeah, still yeah, needs yeah. more religion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I think, I think what, what I was looking for specifically was, um, in in the kind of the specific stories and case studies I looked at w w was um, th things that might apply to all all faiths. So I, f I focused on some you know, quite quite kind of like relatively niche religions, Shinto and and, uh, and Zoroastrianism, which Zoroastrianism especially doesn't have many followers. But um, the things that make um, the 
the artifacts and the, the prayers, as you mentioned, and, and the, the buildings last. That was something that was I was asking in answering the question, like why, why, why is that? Like, um, and one of the things that you, all religions have, almost all, I assume, like is, is ritual. You know, you have people coming together in a community and repeating something. You know, and then joining together in in a in a prayer, in a chant, in eating food. Like, and that's something that has the power to kind of connect across generations. You know, so it, the, it, with the um, Zoroastrians, so the, the story I tell in the book is about the the everlasting flame. So there's a few few flames, only a handful, I think, um, dotted around India and, and Iran, which are kind of have been burning for supposedly for more than a thousand years. You know, people keep them keep them going, and so that that in a way is quite unlike a, a cathedral, which is a stone building that's been around for a very long time. It's a completely ephemeral substance, but it keeps going because there's this kind of reasons for people to come together to keep it going you know there's this status there's ritual there's community people join together around it and that that's that i think applies to all all religions not just Zoroastrianism. and that's that's something that i think can apply in the secular world too so rituals bring us together uh even if you're not religious you know you still may you have family dinners you go to football matches you know these these things are have ritual and tradition attached to them and because they bring benefits, because they bring us together, they can, they are kind of one of the the most long-minded habits that I, I know of. So yeah, but I, I think, as you say, I, I think religion is a fascinating topic. I think I, we could definitely go deeper in, into that. And you know, I, I think this, this, one thing about writing a book is that you realise the other books that could be written as you go, but you have to move on. You have to get to the next chapter. You've got a deadline. You you know you you focus on on, on what you can within the time. But um, I I definitely think it's fascinating. Next book, all religion, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the issues with our perception of time um, that you bring up in the book is that we experience it as we perceive it. <laughs> like we are living in time. Uh, no matter how many drugs you take, we're living in time. Um, and this results in something that is called shifting baseline syndrome, which many listeners may have heard of, where we think the world is always as we experienced it, which means that People, for example, who grew up around when we grew up, like I distinctly remember much snowier winters than I currently experience. Um, and it means that our children who grow up in a warmer world will not necessarily notice just how off it is from a world without climate change. And I was wondering, because we are stuck in time where we are, is there any idea out there as to how we get around this perceptual issue, the idea that our experienced baseline is normal. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I mean, it, it's, it manifests in so many different ways. I mean, you, like, I mean, other examples are, you know, you're driving your car and you just don't see as many windscreen uh, insects as, as you might want to have done because of yes. populations, right? So that, yeah. that's, and, and you, you know, I, I, if I say that to my daughter Grace, she's like, "What are you talking about, Dad?" <laughs> you know, she has no memory of it. Um, Windscreens used to be coated. I mean, your your whole summer, you couldn't drive without things smacking the windshield all over the place. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I mean, th there are ways. I mean, some there are some researchers that have kind of looked at this. Um, so there's, there's kind of a, an associated term which is called environmental generational amnesia, which is, is I think, is to an extent, it's this it's the same thing, shifting baselines. Um, but you know, I, I think. The, the 
the researchers that talked about like how to kind of solve it, they, they used the phrase, remember, interaction patterns. And it's basically a kind of sciencey way of, of saying, you know, if if like a, a grandparent takes their child for a walk in nature, then they can have a conversation about what's changed, you know, and, and that's that that kind of like conversation between the generations was this these researchers kind of like solution to to tackle that. I mean, it's, it's difficult because if, if, if it's outside your own lived experience, how do you remember it? Um, so, you know, I think that stepping into the shoes of other people, that's something that I, you know, I found that one of the most powerful kind of pieces of kind of research on on how to kind of you know, think about the future and, and the past collectively was is known as perspective taking. So this is this is where researchers like ask people to step into the shoes, or, you know, they, they, they you know they, they ask them to imagine the sacrifices that their grandparents made. Um, you know, and that, that then changed their decisions and attitudes towards present day issues, for instance. Or, or like if, if you want people to care about climate change in 100 years, you can batter them with facts. You can talk about degrees Celsius rising. You can talk about like, you know, a country scale kind of issues like sea level rise. But a, a very effective way is to kind of personalize it and talk about one person's experience. So, you know, one particular um, research group that you know I write about in the book, like it got people to to imagine, uh, well, to 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 hear the story of one specific woman living kind of decades from now. She goes out and she uh, experiences like greater sunburn than she might otherwise do, and she gets her skin gets itchy from like a polluted sea. And and compared with the group that didn't hear her story, that had a more fact focused approach, that you know the people were more likely to kind of engage with climate change afterwards, as you know, as measured by collecting leaflets and, and reading kind of books according in questionnaires. So you know, it's it's like it's a single study. This, so you, you know, you have, you have to be careful how much you kind of put into it. But collectively, like this perspective taking, I think feels like i mean so you know i'm a journalist like this is this is how we engage people when, when we write stories you know we put people in there we don't kind of like uh, batter people with the mathematics of of, of certain topics you know it, it, i think da data works for some of course but like i think if you want to reach people and allow them to step into the past and the future you have to do it on a, on a personal human level and so you do spend a good chunk of this book talking about how to become a long-term thinker. Um, and a lot of the long-term thinking that you highlight is actually done by people who are sometimes called effective altruists. Um, so people like Derek Parfit, um, and they coincide a lot with people who are known as long-termists. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of what that approach is. Sure. So in, in, the, so in the final part of the book, just for context, I look at lots of different manifestations of the long view and long-termism uh is one of is one of many as i see it so you know we, we talked about the religious long views you know we, we may talk about the artistic long view later and the scientific long view which we touched on earlier on and um, this this i suppose long-termism is a moral philosophical philosophical view on, on the long term and um the sort of truth it's not for everybody like it's, it's there's been quite a lot of controversy and, and pushback against it but in, in short, it's a way of thinking about future people collectively with a, uh, a slightly more utilitarian point of view. So the, the, the effective altruism emerged a few years ago, just in brief, as a way of thinking about like how to, how to do the most good. So if you had a dollar to spend or $100 to spend or $1,000 to spend, where should you donate that money? Should you give it to your local opera or should you kind of like think about, you know, investing it in the developing world? Now, and effective altruists argued, okay, it's it's the better thing to do to 
try and lift somebody out of poverty, your, do- your dollars will go further there than potentially even in your, you know, your local community. And so it was a way of prioritizing certain causes. What, what happened over time was that the effective altruists started to think about, okay, well, there's, there's people who like need malaria nets, for example, but what about the people in the future? Like there's, there could be a lot of them. So Derek Parfit wrote this kind of like thought experiment. This is many years ago, but it was one of the founding kind of thought experiments to, to, that got people thinking about it was imagine a child walking in a forest. They, they kind of injure themselves on some glass that's been left there, like hidden beneath the, the surface of a clearing. Like what, what's worse that the, the, the child hurts themselves next year or even now or in 100 years time? As Parfit argued that they're morally equivalent, you know, very roughly, you know, we should care about future generations and the children getting injured in the future as much as we do now. Um, where this starts to kind of get a little bit kind of uh, mind expanding is if you start to think about how many people could live in the future, that's a lot of people. So, you know, there's, there's billions of people living on Earth today, but by some calculations in the long-termist community, there could be 100 trillion people living in the future if, if our species lasts for millions of years. You know, so, and that vastly outweighs the needs of the present. And you know, if you put them on on a scale, like nine billion people is nothing compared to one hundred trillion. And there could be even more. There could be you know more than that, according to kind of some slightly wackier estimates that involve kind of digital people. So that that that's where it starts to get controversial. You, you start to weigh up people's needs. It's like, okay, well, if I spend a thousand dollars in the present, it could help people right now, but what if I prevented extinction in 100 years' time? That would be or, well. What if I reduced the percentage chance of extinction by one percent in 100 years' time? That that would still massively outweigh the lives of the people in the present. And so that it starts to get a bit controversial. I, I don't personally agree with every aspect of it. I think it's quite it's interesting, and I, I report on it in my book, or I report on the, on the kind of the. The, the 2022 version of it, 2021 version of it, is constantly evolving. It's a very nascent new field, and it you know keeps keeps encountering new twists and turns on the way. But I think I think it's worth being aware of it if you're starting to think about the long view. It's one of many types of long view, but I think it's increasingly influential. Yeah, it was. It's also interesting because you know, as you mentioned, you know, they they say, well, there's going to be trillions and trillions of people in the future, and so we have to weigh their potential, you know, pain and suffering against the pain and suffering of people now. And so then you actually can sometimes in some cases end up uh, impinging unacceptably on the rights of current people in the efforts to protect future people or future resources. Like I, I could see arguments like that, for example, being used to kick indigenous people off their land because that land is highly biodiverse and, you know, very important to preserve for the joy and needs of future generations. Um, but in the present, that means kicking those people off their land. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it's just true. I mean, that's what, that's what critics of long-termism fear, that, that like it could work, well, that it, it it, you know, it could lead to decisions that that are bad for present day people, or even kind of justify harms, right? So, you know, like Thanos in the Marvel movies was a utilitarian, right? It's no coincidence that often like vi- villains are making greater good arguments about like, you know, the, if if I just harm these one hundred people, then the rest of civilization will be fine, you know, and, and they're often the bad guys. So, I, I think I think we have, a lot of people have a deep rooted aversion to the kind of like that utilitarian way of thinking. I suppose one thing that's worth knowing about long-termism is it does come in different flavors. 
So the version that tends to get a lot of criticism and controversy um, is a is a kind of like stronger version of it. It's called you know there's the strong long termism and then there's weak long termism, and so. Strong long-termism, you know, as defined in a paper a few years ago by the philosophers Hilary Graves and William McCaskill, is it, it basically says the preserving the lives of the, the doing the right by future people uh, is the key moral priority of our time, the number one. So nothing supersedes it. That's, that's real strong. strong. <laughs> that's strong, right? But then there's weak long-termism, and and this was the version that was articulated in McCaskill's book, uh, "What We Owe the Future." That's that's kind of a key moral priority, one of many moral priorities, and so that that's that's kind of like a less demanding version of it. Um, the the trouble the trouble is that I think people make slippery slope arguments. So I think that's the thing. I think if if this is in your kind of like uh, so effective altruists themselves talk about things called Martin Bailey arguments that you kind of you put forward. Uh, you know, in, in the modern Bailey, Bailey defense, you, you kind of put forward an argument that you know that will, will get demolished, but that's in order to protect the inner sanctum of like what you actually believe. And so the, the, that's the fear that critics have that actually strong long-termism is the, the kind of the version that effective altruists secretly, secretly believe and weak long-termism is just the public-facing palatable version of it. Um, I, I don't think it's entirely true. I mean, I've, I've met a lot, lot of long-termists, a lot of effective altruists, and it's a very kind of... Uh, there's a community that exists, but and it has its leaders, but different people believe different things like within it. So I, I think my personal view is that the, the it deserves criticism because it has power. It has power and money, and it, it kind of changes the way that a lot of money is spent in the world, and it changes people's careers. And it you know I, I think everything should have with that much power should have scrutiny, and that's the right thing. Um, but I, I don't necessarily align, align with the view that it's inherently evil, bad guy stuff, that there's some secret conspiracy of people that are kind of looking to do a Thanos-like click on the world. I, I don't believe that either. So it's, it's more nuanced. And I think, and as I say, it's a nascent early form of philosophy. If anything, it's guilty of overreaching itself. I think, you know, going too far too fast. Um, so I actually kind of wanted to kind of back to the future, as it were, like, when we take actions and be long-term thinkers, the problem with the future is that it hasn't happened yet. So like everything that you try to do is kind of based on predictions, right? It's based on probabilities. Um, and so when you kind of take into account long-term thinking, how do you weigh that when it comes to your actions? Like how do you weigh the possibility that you could be wrong? Because as you know, in your book, um, if you'd been a long-term thinker in the 1200s, the most logical long thing, long-term thing you would have done would be to fund a religious crusade. And now we're looking back at, back at that, being like, you know, that was not the greatest idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The answer to the question, how do you approach it, is with extreme humility. I, I think the, the 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 one thing that, that taking a long view of history shows you is that like very often people were wrong in their kind of views and proposals for the future. You know, I, I think it, it, we don't know what we don't know yet. And as, as well as kind of like technological change, there's moral and social change that we potentially can't even imagine. You know, there's, there's many different examples of that. You know, the fact that we live in a more equal society than we did hundreds of years ago. I mean, you know, I, I think the the challenge, I think, I suppose, is not to get mixed up with the idea that 
and I think and I think this is something that does happen. You know, that the long the long view is not necessarily about foresight. They're two separate things. It's not about predicting the future. It's about having the humility to realize that it's you know there is there things have happened in the past that have, have changed the way we live today, and and, and also our, our view could could change on things in the future. But we're not we're not. Um, but there's a, there's a, in, in psychology, there's something called the end of history illusion. I don't know if you've heard of that. So the, the, the end of history illusion is the idea that like we, we, you know, when we often talk about like how we changed ourselves personally over a lifetime, you know, I, I'm a, a different person to who I was when I was 18 years old. However, generally, and, and this kind of bears out in experiments, uh, people, when they imagine themselves as elderly or, you know, 20, 30 years time, they tend to imagine just themselves and with their personality and likes and, and, and everything just just transported into an older body it's hard to accept that in 30 years time we may be very different in terms of our priorities and so, so that that end of history illusion i think can apply to societies too you know we, we think we've reached the the peak of like moral and technological perfection or well, maybe we don't have it but, you know i think i think i think, I think it's, it's very important to realize that like our, our priorities could change. I, I I actually find that quite hopeful. You know, I think if you think, uh, you know, you take, take the long view, you can see that things have changed for the better. Sometimes, you know, it's not all getting worse, and so there is there is hope. The future is still plural; it's not fixed, it's not singular yet. You know, there's certain things that will make it so, but you know, we still have some choice about how how it might go. And and our and our children may have different priorities to us, but that's okay. You know, that's the right thing. Now you're making me think of how I might change in the future. And I approach this with absolute horror because that implies that there is some future in which I enjoy golf. And that's so upsetting. <laughs> don't, don't change, Bethany. You're, no. yeah. you, you've reached your peak. Like, don't, yeah, don't, don't you change. <laughs> I, can't, I can't live in that future. <laughs> um, so as you know, you know, there's a lot of diversity in long-term projects, um, but a lot of them are kind of based on the future, though they all admit we should not stop helping people now, right? Like adding the helping of the people in the future does not stop means stopping help to help people now. But I also wonder why not focus exclusively on solving extreme inequalities now, right? Because things like solving, you know, extreme inequality and poverty now are not just solving people's now. They are also solving their future children's problems, right? Giving them better bases from which to achieve. And so I was wondering, is there a long-term argument for present problem solving? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, there is. I, I think I think when it when it ripples ahead into the future like that, I think that does make total sense. Um, I, I suppose if yeah, anything that that is framed as like, why not we? Why don't we do this exclusively? I think that that's that's kind of like a, you know, that that leads to to, to issues and, and blind spots and challenges, right? So that the, the humanity could face issues around coming around the corner that we should prepare for. So, like, what you know, I guess what a timely one at the moment, which is something that long termists incidentally care a lot about, is is artificial intelligence, right? So, I, I think that the you know a, a future kind of technological threat. And we have created a lot of kind of technological threats. Like right? this isn't the first. There's biological weapons. There's nuclear weapons. But, you know, take the long view. All these, all these are less than 100 years old, and that, that's a that's a problem. Like, and I think 
you know, we, we live in a century which is going to be particularly risky in that way. And so if we, if we only focused on the present there, we wouldn't be able to see the, the problems coming. You know, we, we never would have seen climate change in the first place, right? So you, you go back many years, you, you can go back decades to the likes of Guy Callender presenting in London about the, the impacts of climate change, you know, Gilbert Plass. Yeah, all, the, all these scientists were kind of on their own, really. They, they were kind of like trying to convince a society that was focused on the particular issues that it was focused on in, in a given moment. And so it's, if, we don't want to be completely blind to, to future probabilities. Like the, the trouble is, is when, it, when it's, this is, this is the challenge, right? So how do, you, how do you persuade people? How do you know you're right? And I think that, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that, you know, you could go, come back to like the early scientists in climate change and they could have been wrong, you know? So in the same way that today, a lot of people who are, you know, concerned about artificial intelligence could be wrong. But if, if you know, if we, if we don't have at least one eye on the future, you know, uh, trying to kind of at least kind of find our way through the dark, then then we we won't see the kind of the dangers coming. But yeah, I, I think to your point about uh, focusing on kind of the inequalities in the present. I mean, certainly you look at the long the long term data. You know, inequality is rising, and uh, you know it, it's it's often underpinning many of the issues. Which then erupts into kind of the political sphere. So if if we don't solve those kind of like those long term issues, then that will lead to a, a collection of crises in the present yeah, five ten years from now. So, but, but, but the two are entwined. So in the last few minutes, we're going to talk about long term art projects <laughs> <laughs> because Richard knows full well that I disagree with him violently on long term art projects. So you've cited a bunch of long term art projects in this book. Um, so for example, there's a project in the desert that will last thousands of years. Um, or there's a concert where a piece is one note of a piece is played for a year at a time. So like each note is held for a year. Um, and like there's groves of trees that are specifically grown to kind of weave into a pattern, that sort of thing. Um, and I had trouble relating to this part um, because I, they don't really do much. And in part, these projects don't do much because most people don't know about them and often their locations are secret and they are often so symbolic that they need to be explained <laughs> in several pages. And so I was wondering, what is your defense for building giant, huge, long-term art projects rather than, say, using making art now that we then preserve for the future? Okay, about uh, well, the defense. Okay. First of all, listeners should know that Bethany is talking to me from a metal box without any art on the wall, since she she fundamentally hates art. That's that's because of, <laughs> let's start there. Lies, lies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't. I think that so art, art kind of provokes conversation, right? Like it is now. So that, I think that's that's a start. Um, not all. I mean, I, so in in the book, I kind of look at lots of different art projects, and some of them are, are kind of more. Um, inaccessible than others. So, you know, I mean, one of the most symbolic, famous ones is the clock of the long now, right? Which is kind of, is, is a clock that's been built and has been, you know, it's taken 20 years to build and, you know, it gets a lot of criticism because it's on Jeff Bezos's land and he's funding it and it's not necessarily a kind of fully democratic project. And the people who are building it know that, but they, they you know, they started 20 years ago and they've got to finish it and they, they still want it to be symbolic. So all, all these things are kind of like known. Um, the, the, the ones that I find personally most engaging and the ones that have communities around them. So the the the, the so 
there, there are pl ones in Europe, um, which uh, the, the, in a way the, the art is secondary. It's about how they bring people together. So my, fa my favorite is the Future Library, which an artist, Katie Patterson, started uh, uh, you know, up to a decade ago, not uh, six, seven years ago. But basically, the, the premise of the Future Library is that writers are asked to submit a manuscript that will not be published until the year 2114. Uh, when it will be published, you know, printed on trees that are growing in an Oslo forest now. And uh, I, went, I went to the ceremony uh, last year, where, where the, the kind of the current crop of writers, uh, you know, the first one was Margaret Atwood. She wrote a kind of book called Scribble a Moon. That the, you know, the, the latest uh, handed over the manuscripts in Oslo, and you know, then ceremony, ceremony, like where they were placed inside the kind of a place called the secret room in Oslo's public library. What I like about that project is that you know, you go, you go to it. On a Sunday morning, uh, and uh, before the ceremony starts, there's the smell of wood smoke and coffee in the air, and there's the children on people's shoulders. There's people walking their dogs. There's members of like the local community in Oslo that you know who have all come to this forest north, north of the city on the on the tube, the metro, and they, they they're engaging with it and they're thinking about future generations. It's, it's you know, the people who organise it have this this kind of community around it called the Future Library Fight Future Library Family. And, and you know that they, they it's a collection of people who are all focused through ritual through kind of appreciation of, of kind of coming together and, and thinking about the long term that you know they're connected so you know the, the, there's other examples there's the i like the letters of utrecht that's another one which is a kind of it's an art project which is embedded in the streets of the dutch city of utrecht so every saturday a stonemason carves a letter a cut a cobblestone uh, which forms part of a kind of a long poem which is being written into the street. So the, the letter is is embedded and carved, and, and then over time, every Saturday, the poem gets a little bit longer. And so as people are going about their daily lives, this this one is is really accessible. You know, you don't have to go to the desert to go see it. People, you know, you're shopping, you're going to work, you kind of step on it. You know, I think that those ones that are accessible to communities and build communities around them, I think those have have power. Uh, you know, I, so I, I don't. I don't defend every long-term project, but I defend kind of artists' right to to kind of think in the long term. You know, I, I think I think this. We'll put it this way: that the long view shouldn't necessarily be just the, you know, area an area for philosophers and scientists and geologists. Like it's it's just a different way of thinking about time. You know, an artistic point of view. And I think I, I'm not an artist myself. My daughter is a budding one, but like you know, uh, we'll see if she becomes one. I, I think the that that, that kind of artistic long view uh, is is just a different way of thinking about time, and it brings people together. So I will go ahead and agree with you that I think artistic long views of time are cool. So like I actually really liked the poem in Utrecht. I think that's a really good example. Conversely, I actually really hate the book project. <laughs> And the reason I hate the book project is because no one's reading the story now. Like, how? what is preserving writing in mystery for a hundred years supposed to achieve? You could instead read the story now to the group and the community who is assembled for this and then put it in the vault for a hundred years. The, um, the rationale behind it is that there aren't many things that we do that uh, we give to future generations that are genuinely a gift. So, uh, you, you know, presidents build libraries, but they're actually kind of like legacies and to glorify their own name in the present. But like asking Margaret Atwood to write a story that you can't read is is a gift to future generations. They they can enjoy it, but you can't. And I think that that's we don't often do that, and that that's the that's the thinking behind it. 
Okay. I, I suppose I see that. I still think we should read the story first. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can kind of like Mission Impossible style, kind of like, you know, get into the Oslo Library on a tightrope, kind of, you know, and go, I'm go doing and a read. heist. I'm doing a heist. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, no one, no one actually knows what's in the, in, on, you know, not even the artists themselves. I mean, the, the writers do, obviously, but then they they know that they're not going to live to see. But, so they could have just put a blank page in. They could have put a joke. It's they could have, you know, there's no one checking to see if the the story is there. Um, so I think that that dynamic is interesting. I, I think that will change though. So as as it gets to kind of 2060, 2070 or so the writers will be alive by the time the stories are published. And so the question is, is, will that change the way that they write? You know, I think that's that's interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I, you know, it has its flaws, has its has its benefits. I, I, I like it. it. makes me think. I, I think the thing, the thing that kind of gets me about that is like, I could never imagine having uh, self-esteem high enough to think that I should write something that someone 100 years from now would want to read. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think mean, the the writers themselves feel a bit daunted by that. I guess it's it's kind of you know I I think it's something that they uh, like they're uh, literally calling them the next Shakespeare. Like you're the next Jane Austen. Congratulations, <laughs> you know. Like that's that's. Mm. <laughs> it, it's, it, I don't know. I, I think I spoke to the writers. So I spoke to David Mitchell. You know the the chap who wrote Cloud Atlas and various other kind of famous books. Like, and he was he was very humble about it. He was you know. He, he was he was very much expecting not to be remembered by in a hundred years because you know how, how many authors from hundred years ago he probably couldn't name one hundred like that that really stick in the mind you know so I, I think I think that's the you know that awareness that they may, they may not be important anymore I think is, is is on their mind too you know maybe Margaret Atwood would be but I, I think some of the the lesser known ones who knows we'll see well and with the way language evolves how well could people even read it. Yeah, yeah. The thing, the thing is, I think um, it's interesting that I make in the sense that, you know, if you imagine like going for twenty years and then, and, and then realizing, oh, I shouldn't have put that in. <laughs> you know, it, it, we, we were talking earlier on about like foresight and how you know, things change, like ethics and change, society changes. You know, you you could have a time bomb of a story that you put in the the future library vault that could, you know, you thoroughly regret, but you can't do anything about it. Oh man, a hundred years from now, you know, famous author revealed as deeply problematic. Yes. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. Get yeah. canceled in the next century. That oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you end up thinking in the book a lot about deep civilization. Um, and and you kind of envision one that has an emphasis on sustainability and on benefiting people in the future as well as now. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe what that looks like to you. Sure. I think I think um I mean one thing I should say is it's not not a utopia, right? I think um if I'm Sticking to my word of, of like approaching the long view with extreme humility, you know, envisioning a future of how things will be is not necessarily the way, the way to go about it. But that said, you, if you write a nonfiction book, you have to have some vision at the end and you have to kind of, you know, present what 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 comes next. So I, I you know, deep civilization is a term that I kind of came up with for for you know, a society where where you know we talked a lot about politics and business and media earlier on. Like I argue in the book that. They don't need to be the way they are. Like you know, there are, there are different ways that we can structure the, the societies that we live in. You know, uh, we can think about time in different ways. We can identify the pressures that that nudges into the into the short term. So you know, a, a deep civilization is simply one that has a, a a kind of a longer sense of time. But but crucially, it's not it's not kind of um uh it's, it's not monotone. So I, I think it was really important to me to emphasize that. 
that the visions of the future is often just a, a single person's vision of how things should be and you know there's that famous line about every every utopia has a gulag right so i i think that i think the key to kind of like a deep civilization is that the long view becomes democratic that visions of time become kind of more, more people kind of come into thinking about the long view from different perspectives so you know the, the final third of the book is about you know moral and ethical views of time like technological ones scientific ones artistic ones and I think that's great. The long view should be democratic and people should have different approaches to, to long-term time. So the ones that I haven't even thought of yet. And so, so that, that, that as well as kind of like fixing our kind of like short-termist politics and, and business. So I would also like to see more people engaged in thinking about long, the long-term and to see the benefits. You know, the, I, I found personally that the long view can be a source of energy and hope you know when the world feels kind of up, up up and down like it can give you a sense of like well things have been better or worse in the past and they could be better or worse in, in the future you know the future is still plural ultimately it's like the hopeful version of you are dust and to dust you shall return yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> So you've spent a lot of time over the past few years um, kind of thinking about this and thinking about long-term thinking. And I was wondering, how has it changed your present? How has it changed your day-to-day -day life? Well, you, you saw some of that, right, at the KSJ Fellowship at MIT, right? So, uh, you know, I, I just come out of a job as a managing editor on the BBC, where which, had, you know, had a lot of, of pressures and, and stresses and you know, I, I was kind of still reeling from the fact that my daughter was young and a baby and every new parent kind of identifies with that, you know, you sleepless nights and so on. So, I, you know, I, I came to to the US for a year and, and just had a chance to take to pause and to think about the long term. And, you know, it it always been there. You know, I've been thinking about my daughter's future life. I've been thinking about geology since I was a kid, but it was the actual opportunity to take some time and step out of the present and look back into history and think about the future and brought with it just tremendous amounts of well-being it, it kind of allowed me to to just focus on what matters you know and that that's that personal approach to the long view is ultimately the one i find the most compelling i i, I find if i think about like how my my daughter's life will extend away into the future and her, and her children her children and if i think about my, my you know mother and father and their grandparents like we're, we're connected across time more than we realize you know like the, the, we have common ancestors we you know are, are kind of we may not have children but we will certainly kind of like change people's lives you know the, you, you, it's not you don't need to have a child to shape the future like every decision you make kind of like subtly steers someone else's decisions you know every your choices we make kind of ripple ahead into the future in, in kind of good and bad ways and so that 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 kind of that long view of time i, I find uh daunting at times to be honest it's it's kind of a, it gives you a sense of like gosh i'm just a a flash of light on the surface of a pond and soon the pond will kind of rippled into something else so it, you, you deep time can be daunting when you think about it you know how short a human lifespan is but ultimately for me the long view is a source of connection it's a way of thinking about who came before me and who might come after well richard thank you so much for taking time in the present to make us care about the future Thank you. It's been lovely to talk.
If you'd like to learn more about Richard Fisher and his book, The Long View, Why We Need to Transform How the World Sees Time, we've got links for you at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you're new to the show, welcome. Please subscribe. You can follow us on social media, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, all those lovely things. You can even subscribe to our Patreon, where donations keep this podcast independent. And if you're one of our many dedicated listeners, hi, we love you now and in the future. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Bethany Brookshire and Rochelle Saunders, and is edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Carolyn Wilkie, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 